This podcast is and always will be ad-free, but we rely on listeners like you to show us the love and subscribe. It helps others find the show, so please write us a review on the App Store by going to make.sc slash podcast review. You can also go to make.sc slash podcast to see the show notes, and we invite you to leave comments, join in on the discussion, and tell us what you think of the episode. Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. I have a confession to make. I come to work every day wearing socks that don't match and hair that is messy. I don't care, but occasionally I tense up, worried that I'll be judged, distract others, or set a bad example. Socks and hair aside, I think it's important to recognize that these micro-tensions can exist invisibly in our organizations. Tensions arising from friction of differences and preferences, all the way to more serious differences in culture, race, gender, sexual identities, ability, and financial status. Without even knowing it, we may be creating environments that are not inclusive to all, and these tensions can build and get expensive over time. This episode is on the tactics to build a diversity and inclusion movement at your organization. Everything from convening the first meeting, implementing change, structuring inclusion into the organization's DNA, what to do when issues inevitably arise, measuring diversity ROI, as well as growing your own abilities to check your biases and make your community stronger. And our guest is Dom de Guzman, who has done exactly this at Twilio, where she led a grassroots movement to start a diversity and inclusion department. She also runs a diversity and inclusion group with Frida Kapoor to support over 30 other Bay Area companies who do similar work. Let's do it. So I'd love to ask the story of what led to your work at Twilio doing inclusion and diversity. Sure. Uh, So my background is actually in engineering and um, various parts of engineering, mostly in infrastructure and system administration. And um, I think a few years ago, uh, when all of the companies started releasing their statistical data, a couple of us in the organization had this email thread that was going around kind of questioning why this was important and why now, why did everyone decide to do this now? And some of people who've been in the industry a little bit longer have responded with this wasn't as big of an issue before, but it's so prevalent now. And like, and what, what was the data? Uh, well, the, the data was from all the other companies. So this is right after Google had released theirs. Um, and we kind of took a look at ourselves and kind of looked at the way that in the trajectory that the company was going and thought, this is going to be a really nice conversation. Let's take this off email and let's grab a, uh, grab a meeting room and all sit down. So we grabbed some lunch, talked in a meeting room and realized that if we talked about these things without any resolve or anybody kind of um, taking things to the next level, then it would, it would go uh, waste. And so uh, two of us decided that we would take on a couple of things, just small tasks here and there. Um, and 
that slowly grew into a full-fledged department with uh, th now three established employee resource groups underneath it. Um, so what I really loved about this is that it was a complete grassroots effort. Uh, some of the great things that we've done is I know the person who takes more of the internal inclusion work, she and a Tiger team just went through all of our job postings and made sure that we're using inclusive language. Um, they have made changes where the single stall restrooms are now gender neutral or all gender bathrooms. Um, we've made in significant improvements around the company and I don't think that we were ever at a point where we weren't a great company or that we were not being inclusive. I think that as we, we were scaling to be the size that we are now, we wanted to be prepared. Um, the, the thing is that the, uh, the other person came from a small company and I came from a, from a very, very large company. And we both realized that the time that we started our diversity and inclusion work was the best time to start. Um, it was something that we would embed in everybody and every part of the culture here, which was that um, nobody ever felt like they were going to be alone and nobody ever felt like they were going to have, um, that they were going to be tokenized or ostracized or that there wasn't a part of this company that wasn't for them. And that's something that we've been trying to be very, very conscious of uh, moving forward. Wow. So awesome to hear that it kind of came up through a grassroots effort. Mm -hmm. If someone is in their company right now and listening to this and realizing, man, we really don't have a lot of diversity, what would be some of the first steps that they could take to tactfully start to bring this up? Because I can imagine it, it can be a tough subject to bring up, especially the leadership of your company, if there's so many other priorities and objectives. Yeah, uh, so there's a few things. Um, first, my, uh, diversity isn't just what you see, it's, it's all over. Um, and so most companies, or a lot of companies at the time, were focused on gender diversity, and then slowly they started to get into ethnic diversity. But what I believe in, and what my, the other person who helps lead this, and what uh, we try to ingrain with people that we meet, is that diversity is more than those, just those two things. Diversity is neurodiversity, meaning um, how people think and react. It's also uh, different abilities and making sure that that uh, your office is accessible. So if you have a great and diverse culture, but you own, it's a three-floor walk-up to get to your office, you're kind of cutting some people out. Um, it's also taking into consideration like someone's nation of origin. Uh, and the reason I say that is that um, there are times where we'll have people who English isn't their first language and if you've ever talked to an American, Americans speak really fast. I speak really fast. And when you have somebody who English isn't their first language, they have to translate everything through their head and then translate it back. And a lot of times what I've, I've found is that um, because of the way that Americans work um, and speak, it's go, 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 and somebody can get left out. And so we try to implement different types of rules or at least guidelines of how to uh, be in a meeting and be very conscious of those things. And I think that uh, now that we've talked about diversity being inclusive of invisible minorities and inclusiveness, um, one of the great ways to start is just to start one. It's really, it can start off as an email alias, it can start off as just you get some one-on-one -on -one time with your manager and say, hey, I, uh, I feel like I'm the only one with this part of my identity here and I don't feel very supported or hey, I feel like there's something that we can do to give back to the community and make me feel a little bit less alone as X. Uh, which can also be 
having your company help sponsor a hackathon that is for uh, underrepresented minorities or for youth. It can range all the way to um, having your company just host like a women's brunch or a um, or, or just kind of like an inf informative session or having some multiculturalism training um, or sensitivity trainings. It, it just really depends on why you want to start a diversity and inclusion. And the first thing that you need to do is kind of get buy-in, not only from the executive team, but from people around you. Because you're going to be really surprised as to who wants to jump in and help and move this movement along with you. What sort of things do you say to people who might be resistant and say, oh, yeah, this is important to me, but I have other priorities, you know. Are there any sort of benefits to this work that people don't realize are in included in it? Sure. Uh, there's so much that people don't realize is really included. Um, so, yes, being an engineer and being in a tech company is a fast-moving pace, and it's something that just kind of happens. And uh, especially if you're in a continuous deployment environment or if you are in a, an environment that is continuously um, upgrading or firefighting even, there's a lot of times that um, some people will say, this is important to me, but you know, I'm trying to run a company. This is important to me, or I'm trying to... Uh, just get through the day and find enough hours to do between um, like work, family, and just time for themselves. And I completely understand that. Uh, one of the things to th take into consideration is this is everybody's battle and not just one person's battle. And uh, just because you are not an underrepresented minority doesn't mean you can't be an ally. And the other side of that is it doesn't mean that you absolutely have to participate in diversity and inclusion all the way through. You just have to support it. Um, and one of the things as far as values and um, values and ways that people can find like an ROI, for lack of any better term, for diversity and, um, is looking at your recruiting. So if you take into consideration how to make your inside the walls as, as inclusive as possible, making sure that everybody that walks to the door is a happy employee um, without incredibly spoiling them. I'm talking about actually making them a happy employee that they feel like they are welcome in the company. Um, you have happy employees and your best recruiters are your happiest employees. Not necessarily just the referral bonus itself, but if you have happy employees, they'll go out to their networks and they will try to bring more people in. That was the first thing I did when I, when I joined Twilio. I went out to all my friends and said, this is a great company. I really made the right decision coming here and I, I'm really happy. And uh, you take into consideration, and every company is different, how much does it cost per new hire? Uh, all from the hours that it takes for somebody to source somebody, and then the hours that it takes them to um, kind of introduce them to the company, and then the hours it takes not only the recruiter, but also all of the people in the interview loop and the engineering management loop. How many hours does that take, and what do those hours equate to in dollar amounts? And then from there you talk about... Um, this this process of uh, interviewing and kind of onboarding and bringing this new person on, if you kind of eliminated a lot of the questioning part or you eliminated having to go out of your way to, uh, sorry, going out of your way to find people that you just don't see in your company, um, that's great, but it's also one of those things where um, it would be, you have a lot of help in recruiting events, right? I'm not saying that, you know,
just because you hire women that women will automatically want to go to these hiring events because that's not true. However, if you make this place inclusive, um, people will want to work there. So one of the examples that I like to use, which I completely understand is not for everybody, um, but a friend of mine would talk about how when she goes to interviews, she would uh, use the restroom and she would use that as a way to judge how she would be at this company. Uh, in one situation, she went to the restroom and there were amenities for, for women. And the other place that she interviewed in, it was the exact same company size and uh, amount of funding, but the women's restroom was a single stall restroom, two floors down. Uh, and so she just imagined, you know, not only was she the first woman in this company, but she would have to do things like, uh, well, she felt like she had to be discreet whenever she needed to use the restroom, although it made her go two floors down um, kind of deal. So it, it's just kind of understanding how much um, your employee happiness is worth to you and your company. It, it's funny. It reminds me of a quote I heard. I, I remember there was a speech when I was at school, a CEO of a Fortune 50 company, and he asked everybody, which of these do you prioritize? Do you prioritize the wellness of your employees, the happiness of your customers, or your shareholders? And he said, for me, it's always been clear. If my employees are happy, then we'll better serve the customers, then we'll better serve the shareholders. And I think to that, to your point, if your employees are happy and happy in their each one-to-one diverse sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. to their each unique needs and feel like they don't have to hide part of themselves and their identity to that of the larger group, then you're going to have people happy and people happiness kind of catalyzes everybody around. If someone smiles, it helps makes everybody else smile. And then that can yeah. be felt when you're recruiting and that can be felt, you know, throughout the halls and it trickles down to everybody. Right. And, and, you know, there's always that understanding that not every happy, every employee is going to be happy. But if you're going, or, you know, not, there's no one size fits all. It's not like I can give everybody who's listening a uh, checkoff sheet of how to be most happy at your company. Um, but there are ways to validate any of concerns. So if somebody comes up and says, hey, this is, you know, as a person who doesn't identify with either male or female genders, I feel kind of weird using one of the restrooms here or invalidating that or, Hey, I, um, I just realized that this place doesn't have uh, a service elevator and my family is coming and they have trouble with stairs. Or I realized that the loan are always asking me to stay until way past the time that I should be staying. And it's now cutting into time with my family and validating those type of concerns by your employees and making a decision together is a, a great way to, to move forward. And like you said, the first step to doing that is just creating a space for people to discuss these things and, yes. and be open about it. Right. And, and to come into those spaces, uh, understanding that there's going to be no judgment, that everybody's um, concerns are valid and whether everybody's concerns are going to be taken care of at the same time is a different, a whole other thing. What we're talking about is having a space that you feel comfortable voicing a concern. So I'm picturing, you know, let, let's say that employee that we used in the example of who, who wants to start grassroots, now they have their first meeting and there's people with different backgrounds. Some of them, you know, just want to support. Some of them have their own concerns they're bringing. 
do you have any techniques or have you used any techniques to create that no judgment zone and safe space? Because I could imagine that, you know, these are really personal topics and it could be difficult to discuss and bring them out in the open, especially if, if you're not sure what people are going to think of you. Of course. Of course. I think that's something that um, personally I learned early on when I would uh, kind of join meetings is that a great way to, to mitigate that is to have base assumptions and explaining them in the beginning of a meeting. So when you have base assumptions, um, one of ours is the, um, it depends on, on who's running the meeting, but there's, it's the same thing. My, I call it the uh, no Kanye rule, and somebody else calls it one diva, one mic. Um, and it just kind of depends on the group and how fun they, they feel that day, but really all it means is you don't interrupt somebody. Um, if somebody is speaking, you respect that that person is speaking and that is at their time. Um, and occasionally you'll hear somebody that's just like kind of, you see somebody edging on the edge of their seat, like really excited to speak, but everybody in the room is understanding if you speak and cut somebody else off, um, you get cut off. Like you, no one wants to hear somebody who just needs to talk over. And if somebody is, is, uh, taking a lot of the space. Um, there can be a gesture that says like, hey, kind of give somebody else a turn to talk. Or you've been talking for a straight 15 minutes. What do you mean by space? Taking up a lot of space. Uh, taking a lot of airspace. So if somebody's talking too much or the only person that's that's responding to, to questions, because a roundtable is a roundtable. A roundtable should be community participation and not one person um, answering everybody's questions, not one person who is designating um, themselves as the main person in that room. Uh, another one of those that we we like to do is a uh, one and three and three and one, which means that if you have been in a meeting three times and haven't spoken, you are encouraged but not obligated to speak. We just want to make sure that you have the opportunity and it's given to you. And the uh, if you've spoken three times in one meeting, try to take a step back and realize there might be a, somebody else who has a different opinion than you that should ha have their turn to talk as well. Uh, I think we have one more. We, we have a couple of other rules from different groups all over that everybody kind of comes in and you say the, the rules that have always been there. And then you say, are there any rules that anybody else would like to update or bring into this uh, this as well? And some of them will say, like, uh, I think I went to a meeting once, not here, but at a, a conference, and it was a the open door, one foot out rule, meaning that there's no hard feelings if you get up and walk out of the room at any point in time. Um, and the other one was, um, oh, everything that's said in this space stays in this space unless you were, you've granted somebody else permission. And what, what are the cases in which people would grant other people permission? Um, well, not, not necessarily here, but in other, in other spaces you'd see, uh, hey, I have this problem, or hey, this is, we used to have this problem, and this was the solution that we had. I'd love for you to share that out. Or sometimes somebody did have a problem, and it wasn't taken care of correctly, and um, people will be very vocal about it. I, I know you'll see the, that all over Twitter and all other social medias, uh, especially on Medium posts, where somebody will say, this, this thing happened to me, and it was actually pretty bad. This is how not to do it, um, and, and, and things like that. Awesome. So our, our person has started the grassroots movement. They made a safe space. Now they have a list of five or so things that they want to implement. 
Mm-hmm. Do you have any perspective on how to go about implementing them? And also, you know, I'm sure sometimes things can't be, can't be implemented. And, you know, that's like a, a very, yeah. very tough rejection for someone who's kind of let out their really personal deep sides of their, their needs and who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any perspective on, on the action part of this inclusion diversity work? Um, that that actually has been a work in progress, especially for, for me. I think that one of the biggest things that um, I can say is that not to get too excited and not to bite off more than you can chew. Uh, one of the things that I work on personally is the, trying to fix too much at once. Um, so there's a couple of components in this. One, this is a grassroots effort, which definitely means that two things. One, this is your baby. And two, uh, you have another job that you need to complete. So you need to have buy-in from your current team and your current managers that say, yes, we, want, we support this and we support that you're taking up some of your time uh, and that affects the team's velocity, but we find this to be important. Uh, the second part of that is we is not biting off more than you can chew. And sometimes people think, let's say, hey, this is incredibly important that we, we um, sponsor at Grace Hopper because Grace Hopper is the largest women in computing event and has consistently sold out. And we have, uh, we've noticed that all companies have been aggressively hiring from Grace Hopper. And we, it would give us a great competitive edge. There's your, your use case. And then you go to your management and you say, we would like sponsorship money for Grace Hopper Foundation or Ada, Ada Camp. And they can come back and say, well, you basically came out of the blue and asked me for $50,000. I don't know if we can do that right out the blue, off the off the bat, and then you get a little discouraged. But what you have to realize is that um, a no in this particular case isn't just a no. That no is we have to build up to it, right? Uh, so you can say, okay, I understand. I didn't realize it was fifty thousand dollars just to sponsor. Why don't we? Can I schedule a time to bring in a boot camp uh, that supports women and under underrepresented minorities? And I will take an hour out of my day and I'll find four other people to take an hour out of their day to both help get through a course or part of a course or uh, do a panel session for them. You bite off little, little pieces. Um, And the best way that we have done that is we make ourselves yearly goals and then break those down into quarterly goals and then break them similar to engineering. That's just kind of our mindset. Um, You break them down from quarterly goals into uh, monthly or sprint goals. And you keep yourself accountable, and you always check in. How does this goal meet my my overall goal? Because if you try to change the world right away, you'll be incredibly disappointed with the world. And sometimes that disappointment turns into somebody not not fulfilling what they really wanted to do. You mentioned buying. Are there certain perspectives or tools that people can use to really help their management buy into the diversity and inclusion work? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. Again, I think that there are a few components to this. One, making sure that somewhere in management cares about this just like you do. It doesn't have to be your manager. It can be any manager. And um, I haven't found that to be very difficult at all. And if you if you can't find somebody in management, then go to your HR department and say, hey, this is really important. And this is something that I would like to start. And I'm not asking HR to build out this full-fledged department. I'm saying I would like to help. And uh, from my experience, HR loves when people want to help. <laughs> um, HR is just a whole other realm that I don't understand. But if 
I'm going there and asking how can I help move things along, uh, HR has been really great. When, and then when you start to structure your grassroots effort, always, always find a way to find executive buy-in. Um, executive buy-in is very low commitment for the executive or the C-suite, but it means so much to the organization. When we announced that we were having an internal um, diversity and inclusion, we had it announced by the CEO and the, uh, ch- at the time, chief people officer. And having it validated from somebody who is that high up had other people very interested. And they also were the people who were bringing up, hey, this is something that, you know, this could be brought up in the diversity meetings that, that uh, uh, Dom and Danielle are hosting. Or this can be something that is a great topic for everyone to talk about. I know that, you know, um, hiring for boot camps was a, a big topic. There are just various different places in which you can say um, the executive team's buy-in kind of not only validates, but also just lifts you back up. And it also keeps it sort of in a place where um, nobody in the company is really blindsided anymore. Um, everybody is behind you and everybody agrees with this and it's coming from the top down. It's great. So having the ongoing meetings, you know, putting people, having the brain power together and people sharing what their needs are and stuff like that is having that recur as a way to really embed it into the DNA and the structure of the organization. Are there any other ways that it, it can be built into the organization processes so that, you know, the system kind of takes care of itself in terms of recognizing people's needs and, and recognizing if people feel put off by anything? Um, I think that's kind of up to the company itself or the, the individual users. And I think that, you know, what works for Twilio may not work for other companies, especially companies that differ in size and, uh, and companies that are not all based in one location or even in one country. Um, so with that said, there are some things that work for us and some that won't. And other companies have an onboarding day. When you start, you, t- you do everything in your first day. And other companies do onboarding in a packet and other companies do onboarding as your first two weeks, your first three months, whatever the, that is, including diversity as part of your message there. And you don't have to say, this diverse, we are diverse, we have people of color and we have women, That's, that makes us diverse. That's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is something along the lines that says, um, we would like you to feel as happy and authentic as you can be here. And you talk about like your company culture and how that is embedded in your company culture. I know other companies uh, who do something similar to like the Rooney rule, which would be to be as fair as possible, we will not start interviewing unless we have at least X amount of these of, of candidates from different backgrounds uh, in that interview loop or not loop uh, in your interview pool. So if you only have, uh, I don't know, three resumes in there and they are all from uh, people from Ivy League schools, then you need to kind of diversify where you're looking for candidates. Uh, I, I particularly don't like that way just because it has a lot of unconscious bias when you're looking for the, the similarities. Um, you can hold trainings and, and such that are often, um, you can have I think one of the biggest things is making sure that across the board, 
uh, when something happens that everybody follows the same the same route. And when I say something like that, I mean uh, an incident happened where somebody made a joke that was inappropriate or sent out a video they thought was funny but didn't realize it had undertones of things that were inappropriate and having and not creating this culture of blaming and finger pointing, but creating this culture of, hey, that was actually not appropriate. I am happy to tell you why it bothered me. Um, and kind of fostering this understanding that if something is inappropriate and something happened where someone had to talk to you, that you don't meet that with a defensive, uh, you don't meet that defensively. Um, somebody actually reached out to me and asked, how can we get something like this started? And one of the things, again, I said was like a base assumption. If you even put the small line in your new hire packet that says, as an employee of X, I agree to um, be respectful to my teammates, my employees, my customers, and the community at large, as I am a representative of this company. Um, and that kind of holds people accountable. Yeah, I'd love to dig deeper into that. And I guess going back to our story of uh, the person, <laughs> the hypothetical person who's doing this, they've started the grassroots movement, they're hosting the meetings, they're creating the safe space, they've got some actions brewing, they have really built it into the DNA, the structure, and the onboarding, and the hiring process. Um, and now, like the example you just shared, issues are coming up. People are having unconscious biases that they're saying things that might be hurting people they don't realize you know we all come from backgrounds that and communities that you know may not be exposed to, to different types and ways of being and um so i'm curious to hear um examples not necessarily of twilio of of some of the things that tend to come up or common themes and in, in issues around inclusion that arise and, and ways that individuals can deal with it and also ways that companies as a whole and departments like the inclusion and diversity department deal with it too. Sure. Um, one of the big things is understanding that the diversity and inclusion, depending on how this is done, but in our scenario, we have a grassroots effort that they're the, the, the line that they toy is I work with HR. I am not HR. I have friends in the company, right? And so sometimes you're going out to drinks with friends, you're having lunch together, and your friends will say something that's like, hey, yeah, my, um, my coworker or my teammate made this joke that was slightly racist or slightly something, but it came from a place of ignorance and not a place of hatred. Um, and then you just kind of talk about it. Where does that leave that person that started this grassroots effort? Are they responsible for telling HR? Are, uh, is, are your friends coming to you because they feel like you're, you're going to do something on their behalf? Uh, one of the things that, to do is to draw that line really early on and understand, hey, this is what diversity and inclusion is. This is what it's not. And if you have this assumption that anything that you say to your diversity and inclusion representative uh, and you have this idea that they're going to make moves or that you could, uh, you know, in a legal battle, you could say, oh, well, I did tell HR, and then you realize that these other people are not HR, that kind of leaves that company in a weird state. And you also leave places where uh, both HR and the company at large can be blindsided by things that they had no idea. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I think, like, other things... So, so the original question was about how to, how to more embed or how to 
more of some of the issues that arise and how to deal with them. Sure. So not knowing who to report things to in the proper manner was one of them. Another issue that can arise is that when a company is growing, companies don't necessarily realize um, that the culture changes. You know, when you were 10 people sitting in a conference room just kind of coding away, that's one thing. And you can make, oh, you shouldn't, but you could have made jokes that at every, all 10 people at that table have seen the same Family Guy episode or something along those lines. But as your company grows, a lot of those things are not going to be appropriate anymore. Or, uh, well, I don't say anymore because they probably weren't appropriate to begin with. So I would probably say um, that are that leave the company liable now. Um, and so other things that arise are a lot of unconscious bias. So I don't know if other people can tell, but when I walk into an interview room and somebody who is interviewing me walks in, I can tell if they are thrown off because I am a girl. Or I can tell if they're thrown off because, um, I don't know, that I, I'm queer presenting. And, and you can feel that. Right. Um, there's also the matter of, I guess sometimes this was at uh, a different company that uh, someone was like, why should we even have diversity and inclusion? I mean, can't we just all be people? And why should we have all these, you know, employee resource groups that are that are for um, identities? Doesn't it, that separate us? And that's a completely valid ask. Why do we have employee resource groups? Why do we have um, different groups that are for specific underrepresented minorities? And the easy answer is to help support the people who don't find themselves in this company sometimes, or who feel like they are the onlys, or who feel like if they needed to voice an opinion that was something that was about something personal to themselves, that other people will understand this. Um, so for me personally, when I was at a different company, um, I voiced that I went to like an LGBT meeting that wasn't even sponsored at my company. It wasn't, it was just some random group that I had found in meetup.com and everyone was kind of talking about what it was like to work in tech. And I raised my hand and I was like, well, does anybody else have this problem where, um, as a lesbian, everybody just chooses to see you as one of the guys and now they're making incredibly inappropriate jokes to you, but you don't know how to say no because it's not like, I don't want to be put in a place of aggression. And, pretty much every lesbian there raised their hand. And we're like, no, we know exactly what you're talking about. And that validation made me feel better. It made me feel like, yes, okay, this isn't just me. I'm not just being sensitive. I, this is a real thing. And, and, and I consistently hear small microaggressions like that in which people will understand, um, well, in which when you can voice your opinion in a safe space, Sometimes that safe space needs to be people who have a part of that identity with you. And, and that's another reason why it's so important to, to have mm -hmm. diversity and because and, it builds yeah. upon itself. The more affirming environments you have, the more affirming the people will be who, who you attract. Yeah, yeah. I think that like the as far as being in diversity and inclusion, one of the things I've been really thinking about, um, and I don't know if you're going to want to add this in or not, but um, is... You, how does high tech really um, affect the community or like the, the community at large, not tech community, like the community at large? We have some of the smartest people working in tech who can do amazing things that we just wouldn't even think of uh, 10 years ago. 
And a lot of that talent is being used to correct first world problems, problems that those engineers see, which would be like, I don't really feel like taking my laundry to the laundromat today. I'm going to use a service that does it for me, or I'm going to uh, do everything on my phone or an app, or I'm going to, I don't feel like waiting for a cab, I'll order one. All of those problems, while are problems and have been solved, um, we have, we're dedicating engineers to solve problems that they see, where we're not dedicating engineers to problems that they don't see, which is like, how can we better help the Red Cross in communicating um, when there's a disaster happening and all the cell phone towers are down? How can we better help uh, the homeless community? Can we start, uh, there's actually a service out there that actually will go to some of the tech companies and take all the food that was not touched and deliver it to the homeless shelters. Um, there are there are incredibly smart people that are out there today that can do amazing things and that should be doing more amazing things than solving their own problems. Um, and I think that once you diversify your workforce, uh, you diversify the types of problems that you can see and try to solve. Definitely. You know, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about your experience. I think the Family Guy example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's funny for myself being a white heterosexual identifying male. Um, you know, I went throughout college really realizing that you know I definitely have biases, um, but it wasn't until I went into an intergroup dialogue course that I realized, oh my gosh, I have so many biases. And where yeah. I thought there was like an inch deep of, of kind of things I wasn't recognizing, it was just so much more. And it was kind of scary in one sense, because I was like, oh my gosh, could I be like saying things that are, are hurting people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but at the same time, it was like, okay, wow, I really want to work on this. I really want to understand other people's perspectives because especially as a white man, most of my culture is what's the dominant culture. It's what's in the videos. And, and I didn't even think that there were other perspectives and other sorts of ways of life. It's, it sounds silly to me saying, but it's just, it was such a, such a massive truth that I realized. And so, you know, I'm curious for people like me who, who were like, okay, wow, I really, especially after hearing everything that Dom's saying, realize that this is so important for me and my organization. I realize that this is something that I want to dedicate myself and resources to, but I don't really know how to start uncovering my own biases, <laughs> you know, sure, yeah. where, where, where can people start to work on themselves so that they can better work on this diversity stuff? And I think it, it applies to me, but I think it applies to everybody, you know, not everybody yeah. understands any pers every perspective. Right. And I think that's what the first comment that I was going to say is that, um, well, it's great that you are you are um, calling out and identifying your privileges as a uh, straight white male. Um, there are so many privileges that people who are not straight white males have as well. Like I, I didn't realize the amount of privilege I had being able-bodied um, until I had gotten into a, a snowboarding accident which broke my hip and tailbone and I couldn't walk around. And I didn't realize how difficult it was. Um, and that was one way that I, I was able to check myself. And I was only I, I was only with crutches for a couple of a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. Um, and so, one of the things that I really like to do is when people kind of come to me and say like, "How can I remove all these biases? How can I how can I recognize them?" Um, 
the simple answer is you, you can't always do that and you can't hold yourself accountable to always knowing the right answer or always knowing when you're going to offend somebody because everybody has a different background and may, what may not have offended your, let's say, 20,000 Facebook friends um, may, may actually offend one person that you had just, just met, right? Um, and one of the things that I, I, I think that really helps that is one creating this persona of yourself or creating this part of yourself that understands you're never going to always be right. Um, and when you're not always right, you have to accept, you have to understand how to be wrong, which is not, well, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't, that's not what I, my intention is. You're being sensitive. That's not how to respond. How to respond is I'm so sorry. I didn't know that was offensive. Um, if you didn't understand why it's offensive, you can ask why it was offensive to that person, but never assume that that person that it is their responsibility to educate you. Um, if, let's say, somebody said, hey, what you, you said, or that video that you posted, or um, that comment that you made in the meeting, or you know, asking me to do these things was really offensive to me, and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, why was it offensive? Um, you can actually be met with, it's not my job to tell you why it's offensive. And that's an okay answer. And you have to go out and find out, why was this not okay? Um, why was it not okay that um, you asked I don't know, Claire, to, to take the meeting, to take notes in the meeting. Why does she not feel like that was fair to her? Well, probably because she, what if she was the only woman in the room? Or what if she was busy actually doing something else and you made her stop and do something that, for you instead? There are different reasons that people get offended and different biases that we have that we don't see. Um, and you can, if you really want to be educating yourself on these different biases, you can go online, and I, it sounds kind of silly, but I, I, I can promise you, you can probably just randomize on Tumblr and you'll find something. <laughs> uh, it's, there are great ways where somebody will put you in a situation and you realize what type of privileges you have in that situation. Whether it is, hey, I just landed in another country and I absolutely don't know the language and I am, I am basically just uh, counting on the kindness of strangers uh, to navigate through this place. Or it can be something that's like, I am now at a meetup that I did not realize was was mainly for women, and this is this is different. Um, I should maybe not talk try to talk over every single person in this room. There, there are different things that you can do. Um, and I would encourage anybody really to um, kind of check it out and and look at the things that you can do online. Uh, there's a couple of great comics that are about what it's like to unpack your own privilege. And they're written by people of color, by people who are queer, by people who are identified as straight and white and allies. Um, and they, they vary. Um, and so you can see different people's perspectives and you can see what, what's, what really um, you can do to change and identify these things. One of, those, one of the points you made, I learned the hard way, which is, you know, yeah. I, and I think it's, I, I've seen it common amongst a lot of my peers is, you know, if you if you do something wrong, you're like, okay, well, tell me what to do differently. But yeah. it, it, it's it's hard. It's sometimes hard to realize. But if you just offended someone, now you're putting the responsibility on them to tell you what's wrong. You're kind of <laughs> burdening them even more. And so yeah. I think I think it's important for everybody to sort of own their own education and recognize that. You know, you have all the tools that you need, especially 
especially <laughs> with the internet and it's going to yeah. be hard work and it's going to be a lot of pushing through it, but it's, it's an important to, and, and this is, this is my perspective. I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody, um, to kind of own it and realize that you, you have what you can to go forward. It was, it, it was also interesting hearing about the comics. What are some of your, the resources or readings that have been most formative for you in doing this type of work? Um, so there's a, there's a, a hacker space called double union and they have a multiculturalism training that I took. And I thought that that was just really informative and really great. It was a, they created a safe space for everybody to come in and then kind of talk about what, why they were there. And then it just unpacked a bunch of privileges that I didn't even realize. That was one of them. Uh, there was a couple of um, comics and, and posts that I've seen, and I'm happy to share those with you um, offline, but there's one that, um, I can't remember the, the what it was called, I'll find it, but it was basically a side-by-side uh, -side panels, one of a uh, male who was white and one who was a uh, female who was an ambiguous not white, I guess, um, just because it was a comic. And it goes through these parts of their lives where the white male, um, they were born at the same time, but the white male, you know, as he was growing up, he had his parents who both worked nine to five jobs and went home and did homework with him and helped him succeed. And he was encouraged to do all these things, whereas the uh, the other panel happened to, it just so happened that her parents had worked opposite shifts so she only had to split her time between one parent and the other she spent more time in front of the television because tv is right there and in front of you and you know playing sports or doing ballet or doing something else um, or even like doing wrestling anything that she wanted to do outside of tv cost her family money and then you know the one panel goes straight to college and the other panel is like i have to work my way through college and at the end of that, you just see them side by side, and one is actually the server at a restaurant, and the other is uh, a patron at this restaurant, and he just turns around and looks at her and says, well, that's what you get for not going to college, or something along those lines. Or like, he made an assumption that um, she had made a bad decision somewhere in her life, and that's what ended, that's what, why she had ended up there. Um, and it was, for a lot of people, really eye-opening to see, to see that those type of things happen. I think it's like a good thing about the homeless population as well. Um, people are so quick to say, you must have done something to end up there, when really it could have been that the system itself had failed them. What's interesting is there's a lot of diversity and inclusion and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it's all about just making everybody feel welcome and affirmed and like it's a safe space for them to thrive and belong. And so yeah, and, and yeah. I think that story really illuminates that. Um, yeah, any, I think that that's great. Any other resources or uh, that come to mind or quick thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, well, so I run the diversity and inclusion group. Um, I less run it, but just most, mostly moderate an email alias, and they meet once a month. Uh, that's available, and everybody who comes to that just, for the most part, are um, grassroots effort, diversity and inclusion led. Um, and everybody kind of shares our in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah cool. it's in the Bay Area, San Francisco. But because of a lot of a lot of the activity um, is mainly in the email alias, I, I'm not opposed to accepting people from elsewhere. And a lot of things are like, hey, how can I get uh, how can I get executive buy-in, or how can how do you guys treat a culture page, or how do you um, how do you all support junior devs? How do you 
kind of work with product in understanding that we need to do these things first. And it's really just like a learning and experience. And nobody in that group knows the right answer all the time. Everybody just kind of chimes in and what their experience is and allows that other person who asks the question to make a decision on their, their, on their own. Our next interview is with Ted Dintersmith, who is, get this, part VC, part film producer, part educator. He created this amazing documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, where he follows around some of the best teachers in the country who teach skills that are critical to the 21st century and often are not taught. Things like creativity, independence, facing ambiguity. So this is an amazing episode if you want to grow these skills yourself or if you're a teacher trying to empower students to improve these skills. So I hope you'll join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks.